was just a new parent. So this was nearly eight years ago. I remember walking through a grocery store, a mom with two kids in her shopping cart, you know, and uh, they're going along and, you know, tussling back and forth and they ask for something and mom says, no, no, we don't need that. And they ask for it again and no, no, they don't need that. And then the child says, do you love me? What? <laughs> do you love? Can you, I mean, maybe the moms can resonate with this more deeply, but man, to have a child even question that you love them. I mean, the very fact that Israel is a people in the first place is evidence of the fact that God loves them. Um, you know, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, actually hold a finger here in Malachi, and in Deuteronomy chapter 7, there's this really, uh, just it's, it's this uh, assurance from God. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let's see if you found it, say, I beat you. <laughs> okay. Here we go. There it is. <laughs> I like that better. Okay. Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is God speaking. Oh, okay. All right. It says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Okay, so he's talking about the very fact that he's called them out of Egypt, that they're even a people to begin with. You're a chosen people, a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. In verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. In other words, I didn't love you because of this or because of that. In fact, you were the very opposite of this and that, okay? But he says, but because the Lord loves you... And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. Did you notice what God did there? Instead of making his love an effect that has certain causes, he made his love the cause that has certain effects. Did you see it? He says in verse 7, I didn't love you because of this or because of that. No, it's because the Lord loves you that he brought you out with a mighty hand. In other words, his love is unconditional. The very fact that they are a people is evidence of the fact that God's love is unconditional. It's a love that chooses to love. It's a love that's not contingent upon any particular dynamic or feature. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, I love this assurance. Jeremiah 31, 3, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. And this is Jeremiah. This is the people that were facing captivity. In other words, it's not just that they became a nation, but it's that they are still a nation that we know for a fact that God loves them. He loves them with an unconditional love, but he also loves them with an everlasting love, an enduring love that has always been and always will be, no matter how undeserving we are, no matter how much we deserve captivity, no matter how much we deserve the consequences of our rebellion. Sure, they've been through a lot to make them question God's love. But God's love is unconditional, and God's love is everlasting. This is the first reminder of God my through his messenger, Malachi. This is the first reminder that the remnant needs to hear. I have loved you. I have loved you. The Bible goes on 
Go back to Malachi with me, and you'll kind of hear a little bit more of how this discourse progresses. In this first chapter, God is kind of pinpointing some of the attitudes of this uh, remnant in spiritual decline. And back in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, the Bible says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then, if then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts. Do you hear what he's getting at? It's like, hey, you know, you, you honor the people that are above you or the people that are in positions of authority and, and, and uh, respecting your life. But where is my honor? And that word honor, it's a, it's a very weighty word. In fact, literally, it means that, to be weighty, to be heavy. In other words, to be priority in someone's life. And so when he's saying, hey, where is my honor? These people have not made the Lord weighty in their lives. In other words, God has become like a feather that can be blown out, a feather that, that has no, no lasting presence. And instead, at the end of verse 6, notice instead of honor what the priests are doing to the name of God. It says, To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, In what way have we despised your name? Again, that com- complete sense of surprise or obliviousness or just kind of feeling like, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) So not only have they neglected to make God weighty in their lives, they've actually gone the opposite direction in actively despising God's name as if it has no uh, significance. They've treated God's character with contempt and disdain. And maybe they're asking this question like, hey, how have we despised, in what way have we despised your name? Maybe they need some specifics of how this attitude shows up in their life. And God is going to give those specifics. In verse 7, notice in verse 7 and 8, he says this, You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the what? The blind as a what? As a sacrifice, is it not evil? In other words, these are priests, these are spiritual leaders who are bringing, who are representing the remnant of God. They are coming to God's house of worship. They're bringing these offerings and these sacrifices, but they're bringing a blind sacrifice. And at the end of verse 8, it says, When you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Do you follow what's going on? They're bringing lame sacrifices. They're bringing bum sacrifices. They're bringing sacrifices that were never intended to be brought to God's presence. They've offered animals that are blind, lame, and sick. In fact, if you go with me uh, back to the the owner's manual of the tabernacle, that's the book of Leviticus, okay? Uh, If you go with me there, Leviticus chapter 22. So keep a finger here in Malachi. We'll come back to it. Leviticus chapter 22. The Bible gives some very, very specific instructions Leviticus is the third book of the Old Testament. Leviticus 22, and we're going to read verse 21 and 22. When you're there, say amen. All right. Here's God speaking uh, to the children of Israel regarding the, the specific offerings and what's accepted and what's not. And it says this, And whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow or a free will offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be, what's the next word in your Bible? perfect. It must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or broken 
or maimed, or have an ulcer, or eczema, or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make an offering by fire of them on the altar to the Lord. Very plain, very clear. He repeats it again in Deuteronomy. If an animal has a defect, is lame, or blind, or has any serious flaw, you must not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Why? Is God just um, an overbearing perfectionist? Is that what's going on here? Why? Is God just being super hyper demanding? Is that what's going on? The reason why only a perfect sacrifice will do is because of what that sacrifice is supposed to represent. (laughs) Right? So let's think about this. What is that sacrifice supposed to represent? Number one, it's a symbol of Christ's sacrifice. It's a symbol of Christ's sacrifice for us. In other words, a lame animal, a broken animal, a, uh, one with blemish or any defect of any kind, a lame sacrifice does not adequately capture the picture of who Jesus is. Right? He is the one who is tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. He was the one who knew no sin, yet became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If this is supposed to symbol Christ's sacrifice, then by offering a lame sacrifice, we are actually underestimating our need for a perfect sacrifice. I don't know if you caught that. So we're not just underestimating the quality of the sacrifice. We're actually underestimating our need for a quality sacrifice. As if we don't need much to atone for our sins. That's what they're saying through this. That's how they're despising the name of the Lord. So a perfect sacrifice was needed because it symbolized Christ's sacrifice. But it also, it was a twofer. It was a two-in-one. It not only symbolized what Christ had done for us, but it also symbolized our response of worship because of what Christ had done for us. And so if he didn't do anything special for me, Why should I do anything special for him? This is the attitude that they're bringing to this. By offering a lame sacrifice, they're saying, well, that's all that you deserve. That's all that I want to give you. It was symbolizing a lame offering, a lame worship. And what's troubling is that they don't even know it, right? In verse 7, in what way have we done this? In what way have we defiled you? They're oblivious to how offensive their spiritual apathy is. And maybe I'll say spiritual minimalism is. (laughs) I don't know, minimalism is kind of in vogue in terms of the simple life and simple homes and simple church even, things like that. But when it comes to uh, minimalism, I don't know, the the way, what what always comes to mind is I remember having a friend in college. We took a Christian history class together. I mean, he was was a super bright guy. I mean, yeah, he didn't really need to study to ace a test. But what he did actually invest his energy in was understanding the lowest score he needed to get in order to get an A. <laughs> All right? Like he, he wouldn't spend a lot of time like actually reviewing his notes or even taking notes to begin with. He, he would spend a lot of time at the end of the quarter kind of assessing where he was at. Okay, this is all I need on the final test in order to get an A in the class. (laughs) That's kind of the minimalist approach where you ask yourself, what little do I need to do in order to make it? And here, the people, they're bringing lame sacrifices. They're, They're taking a spiritually minimalistic approach to their relationship with God. 
And then in the middle of the chapter of Malachi, go back to Malachi chapter 1, kind of smack dab in the middle. Really, this is the center point of this first discourse. The appeal in verse 9. But now, entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. But now, entreat God's favor. The appeal is to turn ship, to cease and desist. (laughs) The spiritual atrocity. I mean, you think about it. Would you give this? Would you give these kinds of offerings to your to your, uh, you know, your superior at work, to your boss. Um, for those of you serving in the military or having served in the military, by the way, thank you so much to our veterans. Um, on this weekend, we get to honor their, their service. But think about it. Would you, to your superior officer, would you, would you bring out cold pizza? You know? <laughs> would you bring out a lame sacrifice? But they're doing this for God. And what's, what's, what's troubling is that this, this lame sacrifice, this practice of giving less than the best, is actually not just hurting their relationship with God. It's actually hurting other people's relationship with God. You keep reading there. I think it's in verse 11. It says this, For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations. God is kind of like, he's, he's rousing their souls. Hey guys, eventually you are going to get this right. You are going to entreat me wholeheartedly. And when you do, my name will be great among the nations. The implication is as long as there's a lame sacrifice going on from the remnant, his name is not great among the nations. Our spiritual minimalism is a detriment to our own walk, but more than that, it's a detriment to others' ability to know the great name of Jesus. When we settle for leftover worship, we're not the only ones who suffer. The world suffers too. I don't know if you're aware of this, but those who are completely hostile to Christianity are not the greatest enemies to Christianity. It's those who take the name of Christianity and walk so half-heartedly. That's what God is saying. Eventually, this will turn around, and when it does, then my name will be great among the nations. And then in verse 13, there's a magnifying glass that's put on the heart of those who are in this spiritual declension. Verse 13, you also say, oh, what a weariness. Oh, no. Are you serious? These people who are hearing this rebuke, they're kind of like, are you you really going to put another burden on us? Really? They're not appreciative, as if this is a hardship. Actually, that word weariness is, is the same word that's translated as affliction when it's talked about in um, the, the, the generation of Israel that was enslaved in Egypt and taken captive by Assyria. So they're, they're thinking that God's word to them is just a weariness as if it's a, an affliction, it's a scourge, it's, it's something that they're bound by. But in reality, God is trying to free them from their spiritual lethargy. Friends, I want to leave the leftovers behind me. (laughs) I don't want to bring that to the altar of sacrifice. I want to leave the leftovers and give God my best. The question is, how? I mean, God is doing something here to bring awareness. And so if we're asking ourselves today, if we want to leave the leftovers and instead give our best to God, let me just suggest three ways, three practical ways, just from this chapter. We're going to kind of look at the bookends of this chapter to do so. 
Uh, the first one I would say is, if we're wanting to leave the leftovers and give God our best is, first of all, remove the blinders. Remove the blinders. Stop deceiving yourself. I, and I'm looking at, uh, it's in verse 14. The very end of this chapter, he says, but cursed be the deceiver. This is how God actually calls it out in us. Hey, you guys are deceivers. When we're, we're giving God, when we're persisting in giving God leftovers instead of giving him our best, God actually calls us deceivers. And the implication is not that we're, not only that we're attempting to hoodwink God, but that we're actually deceiving ourselves into thinking that that's all that God wants. So step one in, in leaving the leftovers and giving God our best, step one would be take off the blinders, take honest stock of what it is I really give to God. I mean, ask yourself the question this week. What kind of sacrifice am I really bringing to God? What kind of sacrifice have I really been an offering to God? On a physical level, have I really been offering everything my best? On a financial level, have I really been offering God my best? On a time and energy, a priority level, am I really offering God my best? In terms of loyalty and affection, the weight of my thoughts and loves, am I really giving my God my best? And if leftover worship has characterized what we've been bringing to God, then at, at least let's stop deceiving ourselves. At least let's be real and ask God to remove our blinders. Yeah? The second way I think Malachi is pointing out to us is, is to not just remove the blinders, but to remember who is king. Remember the king. Again, in verse 14, But cursed be the deceiver, who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. Or maybe your Bible says, says the Lord Almighty. And my name is to be feared among the nations. Somewhere along the line, these deceivers who have been persisting in leftover worship have forgotten that they're bringing leftover worship to a great king. Remember the king. So for wanting to leave leftover worship behind and give God our best, one, remove the blinders, but also remember that you're serving a king. Remember who you're serving. I know, you know, what a friend we have in Jesus. I know we, we want this, this intimate, personal relationship, but sometimes that gets into a buddy-buddy type of status that we forget that this is someone who created the universe with the breath of his mouth. This is a king who rules over all, before whom angels cannot stop but bow and say, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. Remember the king. I want to challenge us this week to take some time every day this week just to allow God to fill up the horizon of your thoughts just to allow God to be big in your hearts and minds. Because sometimes God becomes small. And when we do, when, when, when that happens, what we offer to him is small. And so the question today, uh, what can we do this week to remind ourselves of how big God is? Maybe it's just as we walk out of here, just to, just to take a, a look at the front range just for a little bit. You know? Just to get out in nature and allow God to, to fill up the horizon of your To look up at the stars tonight, it should be clear. To sing praises at the top of your lungs. I don't know what it is that for you that would fill up your mind just with a sense of, Alleluia, 
Holy is the Lord God Almighty. You know, there are multi-million dollar industries that put before us how great people are, how great celebrities are, how great musicians are and athletes are. And, and while they might be cool, there is only one great king. <laughs> there is only one. If we're going to leave the leftovers and give God our best, I want to challenge us today to do something about our cognitive diet this week. The things that we feed our thoughts, okay? To ramp up our cognitive diet with intentional reflection on the king. The one whose name shall be great from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. How about it? Remember the king, yeah? All right, so remove the blinders. Remember the king. But then back at the other bookend of chapter one, right? That first reminder in verse two. I have loved you, says the Lord. I think in addition to removing the blinders and remembering the king, I think we can give God our best when we receive the king's love. When we receive the king's love. So if we find ourselves, you know, leaving, wanting to leave, I'm sorry, if we find ourselves just kind of stuck in this rut of only giving God our leftovers, the real issue is, is not just our love for God, but actually his perce- our perception of his love for us. I mean, that's what God is trying to do. Hey, guys, I have loved you. Somehow, somewhere along the line, this remnant has lost sight of God's great love for them, not realizing that he actually has given us his best. I mean, just imagine this. In the heavenly council, what it was like in eternity past, what it was like for the triune Godhead to foresee the fall of humanity and to look around and say, what are we going to do about this? I don't know, you know, just kind of imagine in your, in your heart, like, what would that be like? What would they give for a rebellious race? I mean, and eventually they had to come to some sort of decision. I don't know if they rock, paper, scissored it or what, you know. Okay, is it you? Is it you? But what they knew is that they were going to give themselves. How does John put it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In other words, when God looked at you and I, when God looked uh, at us as enemies of him, when he looked at us in our sin, he did not give us his leftovers. He gave us his best, his all. How did that hymn go? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, wouldst die for me? Nothing but the best. When God was asking, what can I give to these people? I'll just just give him a giraffe. No, that's not what he gave. He gave us himself. And he gave us his all. And what can I give to that kind of king? Nothing but the best. The best of my time, the best of my energy, the best of my priorities, the best of my affection and loyalties. Receiving his love should inspire and beget my love for him. 
little book, Steps to Christ, I love how it puts this, that when Christ dwells in the heart, the soul will be so filled with his love, with the joy of communion with him, that it will cleave to him. And in the contemplation of him, self will be forgotten. But it keeps going. Those who feel the constraining love of God, and don't, don't mix that up with restraining. Constraining is a compelling love. Constraining is, a, is just something that it just bursts you out of your seat. For those who feel the constraining love of God, do not ask how little may be given to meet the requirements of God. They do not ask for the lowest standard. What, can I, what little can I do to get an A? <laughs> you know, with earnest desire, they yield all. And this happens when we feel the constraining love of God. This happens when our thoughts are so filled with the glories of his love for us. Man, that's what I want to be. <laughs> I want to receive the king's love. So when I find myself giving him anything less, when I find myself giving him leftovers instead of the best, let me come back to the foot of the cross and hear God say, like he says in Malachi 1-2, I have loved you, and I'll let my best for Jesus spring forth from my love for Jesus. Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. In view of God's great mercies, I beseech you, brothers, to offer your lives as living sacrifices. Man, I want to leave the leftovers behind. I want to give my best to Jesus. How many of you are with me? Yeah? Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are the great king, and we want to live in full awareness of who you are and of your great love for us. I pray, Father, for forgiveness. And I ask, God, that you would um, give us a humility of heart to allow you to search us and know us to know even our spiritual apathy. Lord, forgive us for our spiritual minimalism. Forgive us for giving you anything less than what you deserve. And Lord, we want to give you all, not out of a sense of duty, but from a heart that is compelled by the love of Christ. That's what we want today. In Jesus' saving and precious name, let the family say, Amen. Amen.